This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Nearly a year ago, more than 400 members of the spinal muscular atrophy community, along with industry, clinicians, and researchers, convened a patient-focused drug development meeting with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to give voice to patient views on the impact the rare condition has on their lives and their priorities for treatments. CureSMA, which organized the event, recently issued its Voice of the Patient report based on the meeting. We spoke to Rose Angel Cruz, Associate Research Director of Clinical Affairs for CureSMA, about the report, how it's being used, and what other patient groups could learn from CureSMA's experience. Rose Angel, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Danielle. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about spinal muscular atrophy a new voice of the patient report based on a patient-focused drug development meeting with officials from the FDA, and what's been learned through this process. For listeners not familiar with SMA, maybe we could start there. What is it? How does the disease manifest itself and progress? And what's the prognosis for patients today? So spinal muscular atrophy is a recessive genetic disease that results when there is a mutation or a deletion of a gene called the survival motor neuron gene, and SMN1 gene. Essentially, the absence or mutation uh, in that gene would cause the development of SMA. And how does it manifest? SMA is manifested um, and a degree of severity. It comes in uh, four different phenotypes, SMA, SMA type 1, 2, 3, and 4. SMA type 1 is the most severe type, and it develops its onset is in infancy, again, from, early, from weeks to the first few months of life. And those children essentially depend on machines to breathe, to eat. And it's, it's essentially not compatible with life. And so it's, again, 60% of the children born with SMA type 1 with SMA type 1. SMA type 2, essentially, these kids are able to develop normally up until... 10 months of life about, and then uh, are unable to achieve the ability to walk. And then the type 3s are um, the least severe of the phenotypes I'm mentioning, and those kids are typically able to walk in early childhood and around, depending on um, the amount of backup genes that exist, they're able to walk until much later in life or may lose their undulation around 7 or teenage years. And what treatment options are available today? Thankfully, as of December 16, 
2016, we have a treatment available that essentially treats all types of SMA. It helps to increase the amount of SMN protein that's produced by the backup gene, essentially fixing the error that's, that's inherent in this gene. And it actually, depending on when children are treated, they're able to really, it's, it's changed the natural, that what, what we know as natural history of SMA, depending on when kids are exposed to it. In addition to this, there's also supportive treatments that are continued to be, that are important from, again, nutritional support, respiratory support, orthopedic support, that are, that are all part of how SMA uh, children were traditionally and are traditionally supported and treated um, because of their disease. April 2017, a CURE SMA hosted a patient-focused drug development meeting with the FDA. What are these meetings? What's the purpose of them? And what happens at them? So the, the purpose of a patient-focused drug development meeting is essentially to bring the voice of the patient to the regulators who are making ultimate decisions about um, what drugs will be ultimately approved for a specific rare disease community or specific group of people, you know, to treat a given disease. I think a few years back, I want to say 2013, the SMA made it sort of a, 2012, I think, a priority through PDUFA, their Prescription Drug User Fee Act, to more systematically capture sort of the impact of a disease and also the treatments available and the way that a population is treating a given disease as part of the framework that they use to essentially approve or not approve a given drug that they're evaluating for potential approval. And how did the meeting come about? Did, did CureSMA propose it? Did the FDA reach out to you? There is a very formal participation process in which the, the patient organization or the, uh, the company, usually it's a rare disease that does not currently have an available treatment. As a patient organization, as a community group, you want to bring that awareness to the FDA saying, we're here, this is how we're affected, this is how much it's costing us to sort of live with this disease in a variety of ways, emotionally, financially, in terms of our relationships, and really what these children or a group of people really have to go through as a result of living with this disease. And we want you to know what's important to us, what's clinically meaningful, what we appreciate or need, essentially, what we find important in a drug that may ameliorate some of the symptoms that we have to struggle on a day-to-day. And this is what's important to us as a community. And so QSMA in 2015, fall of 2015, around September, maybe August, sent a letter to the FDA, essentially it's called an LOA, requesting to to conduct a patient-focused drug development, development meeting. Originally, this PDUFA 5 initiative was led primarily and only by FDA officials and regulators, patient advocacy groups, and they would choose the organization and then conduct these meetings from from everything, from doing the research to deciding what questions they're going to ask to how they're going to essentially capture this information. And as, I guess, the years went by and the interest arose, they decided to let the, exter- the organizations conduct these meetings externally. They agreed to come, you know, to represent the FDA to come and support the groups, but not to be involved in any way in terms of the organizing it and carrying it out. I joined Cure SMA in 2016, late fall, so I came in 
when already this process had been started about a year before, and the letter of request was sent to the FDA. And about a month after I <laughs> was in staff, we received the fantastic news that they had approved our request to conduct this meeting, and that's how this whole process started. The, the meeting actually took place four months after the approval of Spinraza, which was the, the first drug to address the underlying cause of SMA. It's not a cure, but it's, it's likely to change the natural history of the disease. How does that affect the way patients, drug makers, and FDA need to think about the disease and, and future treatments? I think that what's important about, I mean, the timing of it was absolutely amazing and yet a little interesting because four months is really not enough for a large enough group of people to have an experience of accessing a drug and then really sort of waiting for time to assess whether or not this was helping in ways that were meaningful to them and specifically talking about patients who may, may not have been part of the clinical trials, I mean, usually older patients and adults, but even type 2 children or type 3. It was, it was, it was a time that was really, and still is really amazing, uh, full of optimism, but also a lot of unknowns and a lot of question marks. And also one that really allowed us to reflect sort of the spectrum of where things, things were with everyone within the population, those patients that had been exposed to a clinical trial, those that had never been exposed to a clinical trial, some of which some of the patients who had been exposed to say expanded access through a specific program to access the drug, and, and adults who really weren't sure they're interested in accessing the new treatment. So it was really elucidating and informational uh, and important for us to reflect that, yes, this is important. The drug works. It's powerful. It works best when treated early, and um, we all should have hope that it can help everyone, but it we need time to have a greater amount of people exposed to it and seeing sort of how things work over time and, and, and what are people's feelings and reactions about how this drug is helping their day-to-day and maybe um, lessening the burden of their, of their lives with SMA. When you think of unmet medical needs of SMA patients, what emerged from the, the meeting? I think that we really got to understand and see that the need what what patients across the spectrum type 1, 2, 3 consider meaningful really hasn't changed over time. And there are things that are so important to type 1s that the, the drug in itself, especially when treated early, really addresses from, you know, making kids being able to be more interactive, stronger as those before three months of life, literally changing the phenotype of a disease, from kids that are essentially unable to move at all, where a year perhaps into their life they even lose their ability to smile, or two years, you know, they're able to preserve things that are so important to the parents, to their functioning, to their their, their interaction with their child, to their child's quality of life, and, and, you know, we continue to see that little small changes are important and meaningful in this community, whether you're talking about a type 2 or three, obviously, for phenotypes have a very severe um, display of the disease. The parents look for, and more meaningful changes, larger changes, are, are sought and, and, and continue to be important. But in terms of, of gaps, you know, I think there are a number of things that, that need to continue to be addressed, and then I think will be revealed more and more with time of exposure to this drug. 
There was live polling during the meeting. How did that work, and what were you trying to accomplish with that? As you know, the meeting essentially consists of testimonies and kind of discussions from representatives in the community that can talk about their given burden and hopefully give a representation of what the majority of people with this disease have to deal with. When we selected our panelists, we really wanted to represent all sort of the breadth of the disease, um, not only in terms of types or phenotypes, but also ages and stages. And as I mentioned before, exposure or non-exposure to Sunraza or clinical trials and just overall parents. We, we included teenagers, so really our goal was not to just have representation from these 20 panelists, but that anyone who heard these panelists felt seen and represented as part of their story, that what they go through was printed on this report, was heard, was recorded, and was noted. So the polling, go back to your question, was a way to involved the larger community, anyone who wanted to express and represent their voices, again, in terms of these two main topics, the burden of disease, clinical symptoms that matter, changes that they wish to see, that they wish a drug to bring into their lives to improve their quality of living, and just ways in which they, they wish their lives were better. So we wanted to make sure that everyone's voice was, was heard, represented, and that the decisions that are made going forward based on this document, represent a community and not just a few people that were attending. One of the things that was interesting to me is the value patients place on independence and how the gain or loss of that serves as a lens through which they view many things. What came out of the meeting in regards to that? We hope that no matter what drug comes out, but Sunraza and any of the pipes that drugs are in the pipeline are able to bring strength and ability to function in each of the people that are able to take these medications or treatments in a way that they feel that they're able to do more with the gains that they're maybe able to attain. I think it's a matter of perception. I think a lot of people, I, I think a lot of people get used to the fact that they have this disease and they need helpers, but it's just, I think it's the process of losing independence that they've already been used to. I think it's really, really hard. We had one one of the panelists who literally had uh, had movement or had movement in one of her fingers. And, you know, this is the development director, and she's married, and she has a fiancé, and she has an incredible life, and she's brilliant, and she's funny. And, you know, like her biggest, and she's able to do a lot, even though she depends on so many people. She's still very, very independent through this small movement. So her biggest fear, essentially, is to um, to lose that because that will cut her off from her interactions from the world. So I think people adjust to what they consider to be dependent or independent based on the progression of the disease. But obviously, the more they're able to do on their own, again, toileting, for example, I mean, that's something that's hugely important to everyone from small child to adults, you know, being able to do things that, you know, just things that most people would take for granted, like going to the restroom, being able to put on their own makeup, you know, opening the door to the refrigerator and getting a glass of water, that they could be able to retain that, even if they're not going to be able to go back and, and walk or run a marathon. How, how willing are patients to participate in clinical trials, and, and what concerns might they have in, in making the decision whether or not to participate? 
we conducted a benefit risk survey exactly trying to measure um, attitudes regarding risks all associated with either new treatments or potential clinical trials. And I think that traditionally type parents with, with children with type 1, given the severity of the disease, the natural history, et cetera, were very, you know, much more willing to take larger risks in a given clinical trial, particularly those who had lost children to the disease before. Some of the, the things I remember, and I quote, you know, we knew what, what you know, for parents of type 1 children had lost them before the age of 1. Well, we knew it was in store for us that some one of the parents in uh, gene therapy with a type 1 child, another one with a type 1 child in the Nusinersen trials. It wasn't even a part of our minds not to do it. We were just so thrilled that this was available. I think now that we have Spinraza, we have a treatment that we know it works really well, especially when kids are treated presymptomatically, that might change the perception of clinical trials. And one of the things we're advocating for as an organization, me personally and I think parents, is that that standard of care. So we can't really ask or expect a, a, <laughs> a parent with a child with a lethal disease to do nothing or just go into an ex- experimental trial that might give him or her a placebo because that's just not ethical. Um, so I think those changes are very obvious to us and things that we're obviously promoting and advocating for. I think um, when it comes to, you know, later onset SMA and stronger phenotypes, there's just a lot more flexibility there. And I think we're, we're learning and finding out the new attitudes of people. But I think overall, because Sinraza has got such a safe piece so far, really amazing, most people are going to expect that, I guess, from other potential treatments or drugs that are out there. Of course, it's a, it's a benefit-risk trade-off. You know, there are people that, you know, intrafecal, intrafecal injections are, you know, very, very tough, and especially in on uh, patients who are older or who have spinal, spinal fusions or who maybe develop complications as a result of the ALP. Even if there is a treatment available that's oral or sort of less laborsome, require less sort of upkeep, they might trade that convenience for something that may have higher, you know, other side effects that are not seen say, in, in multi-nurse. And so I think it's an individual choice, but overall, because the drug treats everyone, and it's, we, we've, we've heard not a, anecdotally a lot of the patients that have received it clinically outside of trials are, um, depending on who you speak with, are very optimistic and, and pleased with what they've seen. Even if it's no changes, some changes have been, are continuing to be witnessed. And so I think time will tell. Any sense there were any surprises in the way patients viewed risk and benefits compared to what regulators were thinking, or any other surprises you think the the FDA took away from that meeting? I don't. I, 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 it's hard for me to speak on behalf of the FDA or what they might have learned. I think for us, they weren't any surprises in terms of the meeting and what we heard about clinical meaningfulness across the spectrum. Um, it was more surprising to us to to see that there weren't more significant differences across phenotypes in our benefit-risk results, where what's important to type 1s and 2s and 3s is really similar in terms of what the risks they would trade off for given gain and the things that they absolutely would not put up with. And overall, everyone said absolutely no to potential organ failure or anything that would disrupt or, or worsen their existing quality of life. We expected to see more willingness to take on larger risks from, say, the type 1 patients, 
Um, and that was not, that was, that just did not come across in the data. What advice would you have for other rare disease groups looking to hold a similar meeting with the FDA? And, and what does it take to do this successfully? <laughs> it takes a village. It takes um, funding. It takes coordinating with other organizations. It takes really organizing the community, educating them about why this is important, finding community leaders and patients and advocates, really kind of integrating all kind of key stakeholders to be a part of this meeting, to have a large presence, just to be very cognizant and organized about the approach. For me, as I mentioned, I came in like a month into this and I had no idea about like this whole aspect of the regulatory process was a little bit all new to me. I just went into their website and I started reading everything they had on these meetings and how they capture this information and what kind of questions did they ask and, you know, what were the things that they considered important and therefore tracked in this voice of patient report? What, are, what were the materials that they used? What were the kind of things that they chose to put on their website as part of the, you know, preparatory or out, output from these given meetings? So that gave me a lot of um, a good framework gave us, I shouldn't say me. This was really, really a whole community effort. You know, we, we reached out to people who had done it before and went asked questions about who did it use as a moderator to, how did you communicate or approach the FDA? The patient strategic programs group who are, who's the area within FDA that leads these, these meetings? How did you communicate with them? Who should we contact? So there's a lot of reaching out and bringing the community together, preparing the panelists and ensuring that you have a good representation of what the disease, you know, sort of the phenotypes of the disease and what the representation of the disease across the whole community looks like. Again, if you have a disease like SMA, insurance, that you have patients of all, of all phenotypes to represent that group, that subgroup. And there are sort of surveys and, and information that you already have develop, but you have a sense of so that you understand what are the key things to bring up to the FDA, what are the key things that matter when it comes to, to clinical meaningfulness, outcome measures, and, and drug development for these for this community. It's kind of bringing it all on the table through the voices of these patients. And so the more, the more prepared you are to do, to conduct an effective meeting, but it is a lot of work. And that one that we thought was worth it, we got a lot of good feedback from members of the FDA. We had over 16 people that, um, key officials that actually came and um, were a part of the meeting that decided and agreed to speak. And, you know, it literally was just us knocking on doors and sending emails and saying, we'd love you to be a part of this. And she's like the, the, the director of, of um, the neurology division, who was kind of one of the key people who decided if it's an that would be approved or not. And I was just amazed at how uh, approachable they were and how um, invested they were in really bringing this to the FDA and being a part of it. So that was a really nice surprise. The Voice of the Patient Report is available on the QRMSA.org website. Okay. Rose Angel Cruz, Associate Director of Clinical Affairs for QRSMA. Rosangel, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. 
To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>